Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I started at the Met a few days before the Temple of Dender opened to the public. To everyone's amazement, in the first social events uh, surrounding that opening, a whole bunch of people fell in the pool. I remember going down into the Costume Institute where I heard some of the victims were, and they were standing around in bathrobes around the clothes dryer that we had. That's J. Nicholas Cameron, president of NCMC since 2013, providing consulting services for museum construction and operations. Prior to founding NCMC, he was chief operating officer of the Indianapolis Museum of Art, overseeing capital projects, including the completion of a 100-acre sculpture park, new galleries, a conservation science laboratory, and improvements to facilities across the remaining 53 acres of the museum's expansive campus. He previously served the Metropolitan Museum of Art for over three decades with roles including General Manager for Operations and Vice President for Construction. Over a 22-year period, he completed more than $850 million worth of construction, consisting of over 150 projects of all types, led the planning and design process for all projects developed, and compiled project budgets, presenting them to the Finance Committee of the Board of Trustees for capital appropriation. Nick received his BA from Vanderbilt University and his MBA from the University of Connecticut. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Max. It's been a while and I'm really happy to connect. We have lots of past together. I want to start by asking you to tell us a bit about an experience we shared, which was preparing the United States Pavilion in Venice for the Venice Biennale a decade ago, along with the then U.S. Commissioner. Dr. Lisa Fryman. What was involved in getting that federal-style building in the Giardini in Venice ready for a very ambitious project? For the most part, I would say it was pretty straightforward. You know, it's a charming little building that isn't particularly unusual from a gallery point of view. Mm -hmm. So one would expect it to be a fairly simple installation. Yeah. However, <laughs> Due to the creativity of the artists, we had a main battle tank turned upside down with its engine and drivetrain removed and an electric motor hooked up to its treads to make it into a treadmill. <laughs> and this was Jennifer Alora and Guillermo Calzadilla, an incredible duo who worked with us through Dr. Fryman's extraordinary curating. So the logistics of getting that tank fabricated to work that way and getting it in place was a monumental task. That was the great fun of it. Didn't you have to cut it with a laser into multiple parts before it arrived by, yes. Yes. by water? <laughs> and one would have expected it to be an American battle tank, given mm -hmm. that it was the American pavilion. But that wasn't readily available in Europe. A historic one wasn't readily available in Europe, so it ended up being an English main battle tank. Right. And it weighed about 60,000 pounds, as I recall. That may be the most, the heaviest work of art you've ever dealt with, I'm guessing. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was also electrification of the pavilion itself, right? It wasn't up to the ability to run that. That's quite true, quite true. There was definitely a live load weight consideration for how the tank was placed and the requirement for extensive electrical service. 
I think our listeners already have a sense of the kinds of problems you can solve. And I want to back up and tell us a bit about your career at the Metropolitan Museum, which was the lion's share of the years you've spent. Can you recount what a typical day might consist of on Fifth Avenue and 82nd Street, if there was such a thing as a typical day? My career at the Met was divided into two parts. The first half of my career, I was strictly involved in operations, and the second half, I was involved in construction. So the typical days for each of those was quite different. In my early days in operations, I would always start out the day at 8 o'clock in the morning with a briefing with my boss, Dick Morshus, and we'd catch up on everything that either one of us knew that had happened the day before that had any significance to us. Mm -hmm. It would typically involve a kind of a security update. We'd usually be joined by the security manager for that. And following that, I would always go on a tour at nine o'clock and look at the public spaces in the museum that were most heavily trafficked, including the Great Hall and the special exhibition galleries. Then I would typically have a couple of meetings with could be any department in the whole building because operations was the group that provided services to everybody else. So there were always people who wanted something. Then a tour outside the building at around lunchtime and see if any damage had occurred to the building or any graffiti or anything. I'd walk the entire perimeter. In the afternoon, I would tend to pay attention to whatever mechanical equipment was currently broken. The Met had approximately 10 times the amount of mechanical equipment of most large museums, and that's partly because of the way the building evolved since 1880 with being built one wing at a time. And one of my main charges was to bring particularly the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems up to a more modern state. That happened to be a time frame when conservation standards were being taken very seriously, kind of for the first time, and practically no museum HVAC system was capable of actually meeting the criteria. I had an office for a time on the roof of the Met, effectively, in Greek and Roman. I could open the window and actually climb out on the roof. What's the roof of the Met like? Well, the roof of the Met is reflective of the fact that it's 20 different buildings made into one composite building. The roof is 14 acres. That's the footprint of the Met. And it's basically every construction technology between 1880 <laughs> and 1989. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it required, I suppose, on your tour, the morning tour you mentioned, what were you looking for when you went through the interior of the building? I was looking for really the state of maintenance, whether the overnight cleaning had been adequate. If anything needed touch-up painting along the way, I was, I was looking to see how the guards were deployed. Just all the little things that were the appropriate daily routine for putting our best foot forward with the public. Museum security was among the departments reporting to you. What were some of the innovations introduced there on your watch? The Met's security department is huge, of course, with approximately 450 security guards. And I would say the first innovation I was involved in was 
taking away the task of cleaning every morning from the guard force. Mm-hmm. They would typically report for duty, change into a cleaning uniform, clean for an hour, and then change into their guard uniform and then take the floor. Mm-hmm. And it was just an incredibly inefficient way to do it. So I took cleaning away as a task from them and made increase the uh, number of the dedicated cleaners in the buildings department. I worked a lot on staff development in the security department. Certainly the most important task there was to get the right person in the management position, which we eventually did. John Borelli, who you know very well, who's very talented. But we also needed an emphasis on training of the guards that we didn't really have to an adequate extent. Between me and Dick Morshus, we recruited a series of junior military officers who had very, you know, very excellent credentials and were just leaving the military. And they had a very, very strong orientation toward training. So we staffed the assistant manager positions with that group. And every single guard on our entire guard force went through training exercises several times a year. Another thing that I I was fairly instrumental in working on was a four-day work week. So we had about half of our guard force on a five-day work week and half on a four-day work week. And when we introduced that four-day work week, we put some extra credentials required into the job description, Mm -hmm. mainly higher educational credentials than we had otherwise ever required. And as a result of that, we got a whole lot of foreign interest, people who had immigrated to the United States. We had professors, we had doctors, we had all kinds of way overqualified people in the guard force. And we didn't keep them forever. We'd keep them for a couple of years, maybe, before they moved on with their lives. But during that time, we would have a very, very interesting, very multinational group out there interacting with the public. And that worked out very well. It also was a situation where we had in excess of 50 languages spoken by the Guard Force. Another thing that I worked on was redeploying the guards so that instead of standing on fixed posts, they were constantly in motion, or not constantly in motion, but substantially in motion. It saved a lot of boredom on the part of the guards, and it actually allowed a $2 million a year reduction in the cost of guardianship. I worked on the electronic security in the building. I actually Mm -hmm. procured most of it. It was a constant attempt to upgrade that capability. You oversaw the planning and the construction of hundreds of millions of dollars of such capital improvements. What were the most technically challenging construction projects you oversaw at the Met? The two most technically challenging projects occurred simultaneously. One was the Roman court or the the Roman galleries in their entirety with the Roman court in the center. That project had all kinds of challenges involved in it, the first of which was actually moving what was there before, which was the museum restaurant long ago called the Fountain Restaurant. The central kitchen that was actually located adjacent to that restaurant That central kitchen had been there for over 40 years at that point and was in really, really terrible shape. 
So we had to find an appropriate spot in the building. And you know how hard it is to find any available spot inside the Met. It's like the whole place is filled up with something. <laughs> but we, we managed to find 25,000 square feet down at the opposite end of the building, which is the north end, on the ground floor, where we could build a new kitchen and commissary. And we got about 10,000 square feet next to it where we could put in a new public cafeteria. And the restaurant had its own dedicated loading dock in the utility garage of the museum. We even had features in there like refrigerated garbage. (laughs) Well, I remember in Greek and Roman, we were just above the old restaurant, and it was not uncommon as around 11 o'clock showed up that the wafting smells were very much present. I'm assuming your refrigerated garbage was part of the way you dealt with that. That's part of the way, but actually those smells, which also permeated the executive offices on the <laughs> on the mezzanine level of that building, that building being called Wing K, it's a 1920s McKim-Eden White building. What I discovered when I demolished the old kitchen was that the exhaust ductwork running up through risers inside the wall had become perforated by all the steam that had gone in there over the years. So smells were literally coming through the walls in that wing. I'm sure the director was particularly grateful for your remediation. Yes, yes, he was. But I think the those most affected were in development and the secretary and council's office. (laughs) (laughs) The reason that that project was so challenging from a construction point of view was the Roman court itself was so ambitious in its design, and the museum was seeking two new office floors above the Roman court, Mm -hmm. not directly above it because there's a skylight directly above it, but within that same building envelope above it. In order to achieve that, the structure that has supported that wing down to bedrock was completely maxed out in terms of how much weight it could bear Mm -hmm. because of the four-foot-thick masonry walls above the old one-story cubiculum that had always been there that McKimmon White had designed in a Roman style. For our architect, Kevin Roach, it was a tremendous challenge to figure out how to build a more authentic two-story cubiculum that had no apparent structure beyond its own columns and build what was needed to be done above. We ended up removing the existing columns, putting in steel I-beams where the new columns were going to go, and creating a concrete ring beam at the top that was what the upper entablature of the two-story cubiculum was affixed to. So it all looked like ancient construction with nothing else adding to its support. I thought they were the same columns, Nick. You're saying you completely remade the columns from scratch. Completely remade the columns. The bottom half of the new columns was clad with limestone, and the upper half of the new columns was clad with fiberglass-reinforced concrete that had been tinted and distressed to look ancient. It had actually looked more ancient than the bottom of the columns. It was authentic limestone. Nick, you had to get a whole bunch of colored marble and redo the paving and the fountain. How did you do that? That part wasn't particularly difficult. The architect simply specified what they wanted. We ended up using a Brazilian stone rather than something from Italy that one might have expected to be there. 
Nick, you led the Mets change from the analog to the digital world, including the cabling of the entire 2 million square foot complex of these 20 contiguous buildings. And you put in fiber optic and supporting hardware and software. Tell us a bit about that. And let's start by talking about what a cheese was before you started that process. What was a cheese at the Met? (laughs) A cheese was the envelope that a memo would be put in and the name of the person who was to receive that memo was written on on a ruled section on the outside of the envelope so that office services knew where to deliver it. And it was called a cheese because it was blue and it had holes in it. And Right, that's right. That's and, there, right. and that was how we communicated. You could pick up a black phone with a cord and call somebody or you could send a cheese. And right. So you did away with all that and tell us about that amazing shift and change that you implemented. Communications, both voice and data communications at the Met was like a case study in what happened over a couple of decades of time throughout the business world. When I started at the Met in 1978, one of the departments in operations was the telephone switchboard. And I was pretty shocked the first time I saw it to realize that it was, in fact, a switchboard. We had five operators on staff, and they unplugged and plugged back in all these cables to route the calls around the building. (laughs) It looked like something out of an old movie, actually. (laughs) While I was working in operations, I actually changed the phone system twice after that. The first one was uh, a later generation of switchboard that still wasn't digital, but did automatically route calls. At that time, AT&T owned all the wiring in the building. (laughs) Working with them was quite difficult. It was also quite expensive because they charged us for all that wiring, a monthly fee, and they charged us for the hundred or so trunks that we had coming in, and we had the cost of the operators. So it it was quite an expensive department to run. The second phone system I put in was digital, and at that time, I bought the wiring from AT&T after some arduous negotiation. They were legally required to sell it to the Met if the Met wanted to buy it. And everything about it was regulated, so it turned out that it was not very expensive to buy, less than the cost of renting it for a year. But it wasn't worth much because it was solid core wire. So it wasn't really capable of handling a digital signal. So I started the process of converting the wiring from that solid core to twisted pair. And at about that same time, the uh, IT department at the Met had started putting slave terminals in various departments in the building. This was still well before the advent of personal computers. I noticed that utility spaces like the tunnel where some of your Greek and Roman collection was stored were starting to fill up with coaxial cable, as you'd see for a TV. And um, that really, really unnerved me because these terminals were going to become more common than there was going to be an awful lot of nasty coaxial cable around. So I talked to some people who were kind of visionaries in where the whole digital world was going, and I started hearing about the advent of personal computers that was predicted and local area networking of them that was predicted to happen. 
And I started to have a fiber optic backbone installed throughout the building that went out in a star configuration and terminated in the bottom of each wing. And we brought copper wire, twisted pair wire up the risers to uh, every telephone and office location in the building over about a five-year period. Nick, you may not remember this, but I bought an IBM PC for the Greek and Roman department right after the IBM PC came out. And my boss, Dietrich von Bothmer, hated the sound of the NEC 3550 printer. So you allowed me to have the carpentry shop build a bespoke rolling cart and have the plexiglass shop build a sound baffler to put over the printer. And I I will always be grateful to you for that. I remember that quite well, Max. And you were, I believe you were the first person to do word processing on a personal computer in the Met. (laughs) Dietrich was not that happy until one day a pair of inverted paragraphs was fixed within a couple of seconds and he finally got it. (laughs) Now, in addition to all these massive projects, you undertook some other projects to do with special events, and that was under you as well. And the precursor to the Met Ball was the party of the year, years before Beyonce was a guest. What unusual expectations did the volunteer chairs of those big annual fundraisers have that you had to meet? The party of the year was such a big deal. It was so important for the Costume Institute. The expectations for what was going to happen in the 24 hours before that party every year just grew and grew. The year that actually set the bar at an absurdly high level was 1982, when the LaBella Puck exhibition took place. We were using, actually, the museum restaurant at that point. We just abandoned the fountain pool in the middle that had the Carl Millis sculptures in it. We sent them off someplace else on loan and turned that into a restaurant space so that it could accommodate the dinner that was really too big for any space in the building. It was like 500 people. The decor in that restaurant was the interior of Maxime's for that party. It was produced in France. It came over panelized with all kinds of things to be applied to the panels afterwards to make it more three-dimensional, including some great big precast plastic moldings that were already stained. The assemblage of that overnight, within a 24-hour period, was absolutely mind-blowing. It looked absolutely authentic by candlelight when that dinner occurred. And it was such an extraordinary accomplishment that I think every party of the year after that, you know, they just couldn't do enough. (laughs) I'm not sure anything ever quite lived up to that installation, though. It reminds me of when presidents change and the White House has to completely redo itself, but the White House change now seems on such a minor scale. When you <laughs> Nick, museums are becoming more sensitive to environmentally friendly construction techniques, and you oversaw the creation of a geothermally heated building in the Indianapolis Museum's 100-acre sculpture park. How effective do you think geothermal may end up being in general in construction? I think geothermal is an absolutely wonderful solution from an environmental standpoint and from an energy consumption standpoint. I think it ranks up there with 
the use of solar panels and the use of wind farms, but there are certainly a lot of issues to consider with geothermal. The site conditions, of course, have to be appropriate. You have to have the ability to sink enough wells to meet your load within short proximity of each other. The architecture of the building itself has to be sympathetic to what you're trying to do. You don't want too much glass exposed to the sun. You want the building to be heavily insulated. For a museum, I don't believe I would ever recommend that geothermal stand alone. Climate control issues, particularly control of relative humidity, is always challenging. I think geothermal is a good base system to have, but I think it always needs to be supplemented by mechanical systems that can pick up part of the load when either it's very hot or very cold outside. Maybe less so with something like a residential space, but I think for a museum, it should always be supplemented. But I think it's got a great future. You've covered a lot of ground today. I'm so grateful. I'm wondering, were there any construction snafus you'd be willing to share with us? Uh, sure. (laughs) I started at the Met a few days before the Temple of Dender opened to the public. Mm Mm-hmm. To everyone's amazement, in the first social events uh, surrounding that opening, a whole bunch of people fell in the pool. And I remember going down into the Costume Institute where I heard some of the victims were, and they were standing around in bathrobes around the, the clothes dryer that we had in the Costume Institute getting their clothes dried. That led to a low railing being put around the pool. And it also led to the nickname, the Temple of Dindin, I believe. (laughs) Um, In terms of snafus that happened in, actually happened in construction, probably the most amusing situation that I can think of was the fountain that I mentioned before that was in the middle of the Roman court. That wasn't quite a snafu, but it came very, very close to being one. The project was originally designed with this fountain in the middle, which was designed to be carved out of a solid block of absolute black granite. And it was nine feet in diameter. It looked, you know, it looks very much like a, it's a Roman looking birdbath. And various opinions popped up in the course of the project, including Philippe, of course, but... Uh, our then director of the matter. Our then director. The Greek and Roman department had an opinion, and there was a trustee donor who also had a strong opinion. Typically, a person like that wouldn't be involved in design, but this person was significant to the project in many ways. So the fountain went back and forth as an item of being included or excluded from the project. And I became very worried as the project moved on that I was going to run out of time to get it procured and fabricated and everything. I had to hire a special stone agent expediter to find a block of granite like that in the first place. He found one from South Africa, and the intent was to have the fountain carved in Carrara, where the best stone carving facilities are thought to be. So... Every single weekly construction meeting, 
with the director, I would bring this up as something that we could potentially run out of time on if a decision wasn't made. <laughs> and it kept getting pushed off and pushed off and pushed off. And finally, I decided to buy the block of stone. I figured I could sell it again if we didn't fabricate the fountain. So I bought it for $25,000 and I got it shipped to Carrara and had them kind of standing by and time went on and time went on and I actually thought that we'd lost the opportunity to have it fabricated at all. The director was very reluctant to make a final decision on it. So I got a call from our architect, Roach Denkelow, who had a call from the stone expediter saying that the fountain was sitting in a field in New Haven next to a stone yard and we should come and look at it. And I said, well, we're not under contract to have that fountain fabricated, which I believe was another $50,000. So I got on the phone with the actual agent who had found the stone and had it fabricated. And I said, what, why did you go ahead and fabricate this? And he said, uh, well, there are risks involved that, that we never discussed before. For one thing, the stone could have had an imperfection in it and broken when we tried to fabricate it. So the only way I could mitigate my risk was to go ahead and do it. <laughs> so I had to go to uh, I had to go to the director and say, "Oops, the uh, fountain's sitting in a field." And he said, "Well, we're going to go look at it." So there was a big group that all got in cars and drove out there. And fortunately, it looked fabulous, <laughs> and the decision was made that the fountain was in. Its water flow was being engineered, I think, the day before we opened to the public with that very, very beautiful installation. Nick, all of us visiting the Met from this point on will see that fountain and remember that anecdote. And I thank you so much for making time to be on the podcast today. Thank you, Max. Great speaking with you. We've been speaking today with J. Nicholas Cameron, president of NCMC providing consulting services for museum construction and operations. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.